broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Investor Exchange. I'm your host today, Louis Van Copenhagen, and joining me as always is Joel Hewish and Brett Dickinson. Hello, fellas. Good morning, Louis. Good morning, listeners. Good to be with you all. Morning, guys. Bringing you another men's only edition in this week of International Women's Day. Ah, yes. <laughs> happy International Women's Day, fellas. Yes, Ooh, happy International Monday, Women's Day. Yes. Uh, I think um, uh, we won't even save it for the You Can't Be Serious, but I think everyone's seen the, the Burger King fail for uh, for what they've done on International Women's Day. I Tell us about it, it Louis. Well, they, uh, they, they came out with uh, a, a nice initiative, which was to try and support gender equality in kitchens through a um, uh, through an initiative um, of uh, of apprenticeships and, and things like that. Um, unfortunately, the the marketing department didn't quite get it right, and they came up with the tagline "Women belong in the kitchen." <laughs> and so uh, yeah, that came on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, so the the Burger King Twitter feed just came out with a comment saying, women belong in the kitchen. No context, nothing else. So happy International Women's Day, women belong in the kitchen. Mm. Yeah. That wasn't well thought through. So, no, it wasn't well thought through. And uh, in, in the follow-up uh, uh, statements, they said, oh, look, we, we had a marketing agency and they were just being uh, too clever with it. Wow, that's backfired. Yes, yeah. certainly has, certainly has. Sometimes it's better to just say nothing. That's what I've found with, with women in my life. <laughs> That's sage advice, Brett. Yes. Uh, and uh, what have you guys been up to for the rest of the week? Joel, I know you've been doing some uh, some business meetings interstate. Yes, it's been quite busy. We've uh, been up to the uh, southeast Queensland, met with a few partners up there in the last couple of days, and then back down to um, uh, back down to Sydney uh, yesterday and today to meet with some clients. Uh, it's great to actually catch up with many of our clients who we haven't been able to see for the best part of 12 to 18 months because of border closures. So um, it's uh, it's nice to get in front of our clients again and uh, you know shake their hands and and uh, sit across the table and be able to discuss discuss life and business and uh, and enjoy a, a coffee or a latte or even share a, a bite to eat. I uh, haven't done that for, for quite some time. So uh, nice experience. Without yeah. a mask too. Without a mask. Yes, indeed. In fact, we're actually able to get into uh both uh, Ubers and taxis without a mask as well, which was a which is a different experience. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, there you go. There you go. Some normality is uh, is starting to come back. Well, certainly up in uh, New South Wales and Queensland. Mm, that's right. That's right. A bit like riding a bicycle, I guess. You just get back into the old habits, but uh, but I bet it sure feels good. 
It does. It does indeed. No, it, uh, it, it was nice actually to stretch the legs out and have a little bit of that, you know, old taste of uh, pre-COVID days. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, in the news this week, there's uh, there's reports on uh, uh, the potential uh, effects after the end of JobKeeper, which is uh, which is coming up soon. And in fact, just uh, uh, just overnight, there was a report from the ATO uh, about uh, the number of cases of fraud of uh, of JobKeeper that are that are coming out and uh, and how they're following those up, but also reports of some businesses who qualified for the JobKeeper payments and then made the JobKeeper payments um, and then um, have actually turned out to be quite profitable. And the ATO has been warning that they would name and shame companies, uh, public companies that received JobKeeper and then paid executive bonuses. And so what we're finding is that a lot of these companies are actually looking for how they can hand some of those JobKeeper payments back. And I can only imagine some of those executives want to get their bonuses. <laughs> well, yeah, look, I guess there's always that. Uh, I mean, no one really knew exactly how this was all going to pan out. And I, and I guess when the um, when the government put together this program, it was done hastily. It wasn't one of those carefully thought out programs. It needed to be needed to be big and it needed to be uh, quick. And and in being big and quick, um, you know, there was always going to be those gaps that opened up that perhaps uh, no one really predicted or expected. And uh, this is where we get to, I guess. Yeah, it is. And uh, the the main thing about the JobKeeper scheme was that it was based on qualifying if you had a fall in revenue, but not necessarily if you had a fall in profits. So that's mm-hmm. how you've got this situation of companies whose revenues um, must have fallen through the period of time. Uh, but by taking certain management measures, are uh, still able to deliver a profit uh, yeah. at the outcome, um, which which you only figure out once you've been through the situation and, and come to the end of the, all the reporting. Absolutely. Well, look, Louis, I mean, if you had told me that uh, the, the world was going into a global recession uh, and that, uh, you know, economies were going to be shut down and locked down. I think most people would have thought it reasonable that there wouldn't be too many companies that would be out there that would be too profitable. But, um, you know, it was a very different type of shutdown. It wasn't a broad economic-led shutdown. This was something that really, you know, impacted more more sectors greater than others. Mm. And uh, and some actually became major beneficiaries of this, which is, yep. uh, which is quite rare during a, a broader economic shutdown. That you would have in a typical economic-led recession, but this was much more, uh, you know, this is much more of a manipulated recession, and uh, unintended consequences come about. So, yeah, yeah, yep, that's just what it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep. So, uh, Joel, why don't we kick off with you and uh, and some other things that have been happening in the latest week of uh, share markets. Sure, Louis. Well, uh, just a, a number of tidbits I've got today. Um, just some interesting points that I thought would be worthwhile discussing with with yourselves and also with the listeners. Uh, we note that uh, the Bi- uh, Joe Biden has been able to uh, be successful in passing his coronavirus bill. This is a 1.9 US trillion dollar uh, relief package. Um, it's uh, it's it's designed to uh, provide. Uh, supplemental payments to 
to U.S. citizens, uh, it looks like there's on average going to be around about $1,400 in, in check payments made to uh, individuals in the United States to help them get through the coronavirus and uh, ease some of the, the burden of the shutdowns and the lockdowns. Uh, a fair bit of that money is also going towards the rollout of the vaccine disbursement programs. Um, and uh, and there will obviously be some other uh, transfer payments as well that will uh, that will help uh, you know people with um, getting and rebuilding their economies and rebuilding their districts. A fair bit of that money is going to go down to um, uh, increasing the jobless aid supplement as well, and uh, and a one-year expansion of the child tax credit, which uh, which is obviously another supplemental payment to families that have a have a child that they're looking after. So this is a huge bill. Um, this is uh, 1.9 trillion US, which works out to be probably somewhere around about 2.4 to 2.6 trillion Aussie. Um, it's almost it, two uh, Australian economies. It, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, Louis. It, it, if, if, if you're looking at it in terms of how to compare it, it's at the size of about one and a half Australian economies. Um, it's one and a half times the Australian GDP. So it's it's a mammoth, yeah, almost two times. So it's a mammoth uh, a bill that's going to go through the US. And, um, and and it just sort of goes to show as to, you know, why we've, we're saying at this point in time, you know, don't fade this market, don't get too bearish at this point in time. You know, we've, we've been going through a correction in technology stocks. Uh, technology stocks have been... A large part of where the action's been taking place over the last 10 months or so since the uh, since the lows in April of last year, um, and and you know many of them have benefited from the work from home uh, theme uh, that that has been going on over the last 12 months, and there's been very much an acceleration in adoption of many of those technologies, and and many of those stocks were by far the biggest winners last year, um, and and some of them are correcting, you know, uh, the Nasdaq. Is off around about 11% from peak to trough. I think some of our stocks, I think we're our, some of our portfolios are probably off about 13 or 14% on average. Uh, so we're actually doing a little bit worse, even though we raise cash. So it just shows that the magnitude of the correction in in those stocks has been uh, uh, quite quite significant. But um, it's not the time really to get uh, to get bearish. Many other parts uh, we're seeing really what we're seeing is this rotation rotation out of those leaders from last year into uh, new leaders that that are emerging at the moment, and those new leaders appear to be popping up in the uh, in the in the recovery stocks and those opening up stocks. Uh, and so um, I think it's way too long, way too quick to to be uh, to be getting too pessimistic here. And, and in fact, uh, even just last night, on average, we had around about. Um, I think on average, most of our stocks are up around about 5% on average across the board that uh, just closed trade this morning. Uh, I think this correction's probably now over, uh, given the buying that's come in at the lows and then this follow through day that we've seen today. Uh, it looks it looks pretty close to this correction being over and 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 it, so it should be. If you've got $2.6 trillion in Australian dollar terms, all of a sudden just hitting the, the market out of nowhere, uh, that's a real big, you know, shot in the arm. But you put that together with um, uh, low interest rates. You put it together with uh, quantitative easing that is uh, taking place not just in the US but in Australia, around the world. You put that together with the fact that uh, the coronavirus vaccines are rolling out, and even in the US today, I've just had a double check of their daily case numbers. Uh, they're now sitting at around about 
50 odd thousand they're oscillating between about 45 to 55,000 in the last couple of days down from about 300,000 daily cases in at the start of January so uh, yeah it, it, it's it we're, we're seeing you know seeing things getting better and uh, you, you don't want to be too panicked about uh, the odd volatility period uh, that we go through because the the general trend is uh, is high Joel, let me pull you up on that because what the, uh, an argument against it, it's a small one, um, but the argument against is that the fall the, of, of the correction hasn't actually been enough. Um, the, the amount of the fall on indexes uh, in the last three weeks, it's only given up the gains that have occurred since about mid or early January. So you, you've only, in, in three weeks of losses, you've only lost money from the sort of five or six weeks before that yeah so the nasdaq got down to the lows that were uh where the nasdaq was sort of around early december so it's uh it's given up a, a little bit but it's a, it's a healthy yeah. correction i mean the nasdaq was off around about 11 percent. many of the stocks underneath uh the big companies were off you know 15 20 25 percent so there's been a fair bit of technical damage in in many of those work from home stocks that were the leaders last year um I'm I'm of a different view. I mean, I think that um, you know, there's no reason why those stocks can't continue to perform well moving forward. Um, it may not be at the same pace in which they uh, the performed last year, but I, I think that there's still still good opportunities. I mean, these are the fastest growing companies on the stock market right now in in healthcare, biotechnology, technology, uh, computers, but. But there's a rotation, and so this is why we're seeing the Dow and the S&P 500 holding up much better than the Nasdaq, and we're even seeing our market holding up much better as well. It re really, the Nasdaq and the S&P have basically just gone sideways, and in fact, last night they've now broken out to new all-time highs, and that's because they contain much more of the industrial, retail, um, hospitality, and hotels uh, types of businesses that have really, you know, borne the brunt of of the uh, of the shutdowns, but they're the ones that are starting to get a bid now. Uh, money's coming out, money rotated out of technology businesses into some of these other businesses that are benefiting from the reopening, but have really lagged the recovery. And uh, and but you've got to bear in mind that the S and P 500 and the Dow have not moved anywhere near as far as what the Nasdaq has over the past 12 months. So. Um, I think this is a nice, healthy correction. It, it looks uh, it looks it looks quite, um, you know, it's happened in a three-wave, uh, a down, a, a bit of a, a pause, and then another down move again, and now it appears appears to be catching a nice strong bid off the lows. Uh, the, the three up days out of the last five days have been, you know, those days have been on good size volume, and the, and the closes have been very strong. And when you see the constituents within those indexes, and certainly a lot of the stocks that we have in our portfolio last night, like I said, we're up sort of, you know, on average around about 5%. You see that sort of buying off the lows that that typically tends to correlate quite well with with a uh, with a with a short term or intermediate term low being put in place. Now it doesn't guarantee anything. We've still got a little bit of technical resistance to get through here. We've got the 50-day moving average, which is which is potentially um, some overhead supply. So. Uh, it's uh, and, and the Nasdaq's running into that 50-day average now. So we'll see how it responds once it gets to that 50-day. It could potentially be marked down here a little bit. Uh, but, you know, it, it, and it may even go back down to the lows. But I, I think that we've found a level. It, it appears as, uh, that somewhere near that 12,000, that psychological level around 12,000 is, 
is where the, the market wanted to get down to and test, and, and it seems to be finding some buyers there. So if it does get marked down from here again and we, we head back down towards 12,000, I think with the 200-day moving average intersecting or coming up and closing in on that 12,000 mark, that that it's probably going to hold that 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 area and uh, and and bounce off that area if it does get down there. But I would not be surprised if um, if this correction is also over right now and we start moving into uh, you know getting back up towards those uh, previous highs where we were in the middle of February. Very interesting. Thanks, Joel. Um, well, look, tell us a bit more about uh, some some bits of news that you've come across. Yeah, well, look, I note that uh, I note that the bond market is starting to to tell governments that they need to be uh, starting to think about a little bit more fiscal responsibility now. Uh, we have seen, in fact, what led to the uh, probably the correction getting underway in mid February in these fast growing Nasdaq stocks was the fact that the ten year bond yield in the United States was actually increasing uh, quite a bit and uh, got to the point where it, it made investors reconsider whether or not uh, we need to think about inflation at some point in time down the track re-emerging. Um, I, I note that uh, about six weeks ago, Goldman Sachs raised their expectation for US GDP growth to around about 6% for the next 12 months. So that's a huge rate of growth for the largest economy in the world. And and as as you start to see those sorts of GDP growth rates, uh, you're going to start to see more and more people go back to work, jobs reopen, people get get people you know being put back to work as uh, as those jobs uh, are now need to be refilled again that uh, were that were you know uh, turned away during the the shutdown. Um, and and the S and P five uh, sorry the uh, Standard and Poor's the the bond rating agency has issued a warning to the Morrison government stating that it's now time for the Morrison government to start considering uh, moving towards a much more uh, responsible fiscal policy stance. So this, you know, this splurge and this emergency, these emergency measures uh, that were put in place with JobKeeper and JobSeeker and, uh, and various other stimulus packages or support packages during the shutdown, they were grossly expensive. They were, they were, you know, in, incredibly expensive for the the US, uh, for the Australian, uh, for Australian taxpayers. And uh, Standard and Poor's have basically said that, okay, well, now that we seem to be coming out of this, uh, it's now time to start thinking about getting your house in order again. Because if we don't, um, they're likely to, uh, you know, threaten for us to to put down our um, our uh, AAA credit rating, which which means that you know we become if, if we lose our AAA credit rating, it's not the worst thing in the world. But what it does mean is that it probably loses out some of our competitive advantage when we're trying to seek capital from overseas. Um, it means that um, uh, getting access to credit is going to be slightly more expensive, and uh, and and being a AAA credit rating makes it easier for governments to get more uh, more money to to fund their fiscal programs as well. So. It's it's not the end of the world if we did lose the AAA credit rating, but it certainly is something that we would want to uh, try to protect if we can protect it. Mm, mm. Well, it certainly makes things uh, a, a lot better overall if, if we can keep that rating and um, uh, re reduces our future cost of borrowing. Yeah. Now, one, one other thing just before I finish up, Louis, uh, I note that uh, Latitude, the Ahmed Fahour-led um, XGE money uh, a business which has now changed its name to Latitude, it's trying for a third time to list itself on the ASX. So 
Latitude was bought out by a syndicate of venture capital businesses. Uh, those venture capital businesses were made up of KKR, Varde and Deutsche Bank. These guys have been involved in this business largely since the GFC, and they're looking to exit. They've been wanting to exit for some time, in fact. Now, they tried to do a listing uh, somewhere around about four years ago, three or four years ago, and, and that failed. There just wasn't enough uh, interest in, in banks as credit was tightening up and as the regulations on, on consumer credit were tightening up during that period of time. Then Ahmed uh, tried to launch a uh, another IPO of the business uh, when he became CEO back in 2019, but that was pulled after there was not enough institutional support to buy the shares of KKR, Verde and Deutsche Bank. So it appears now what, uh, what has happened is that uh, a Japanese bank called Shinsei Bank uh, has now purchased a 10% stake in Latitude. And that has enabled uh, that has enabled a large part of um, KKR, Verde, and Deutsche Bank shares to be put, purchased off them. So that gives them their exit. Not all of their shares have been purchased, but through a restructure of their share registry, uh, Latitude now has <clears throat> around about 28% of its register that could be classified as a free float. So as a result of that. Mm. Um, uh, under ASX listing rules, you need to have more than 20% of your uh, outstanding share capital considered to be free float in order for you to list on the ASX. With Latitude now sitting at 28%, it appears third time's a charm for Latitude, and they're now looking at uh, at listing without raising a dollar of capital. Uh, they will be in a position to be able to list without having to raise any capital um, uh, in, in this uh, in this IPO. So uh, well, we'll watch this space. I mean, I'm not sure I'd be rushing out to buy shares in Latitude. It's uh, it's you know it's in that consumer lending space. It certainly takes on those unsecured loans and asset back financing. It certainly has its risks there. Uh, and um, uh, but you know, interesting. Third time's a charm. He's uh, they've they've been persistent, and finally, I think they're getting their exit that uh, that they wanted. Long time coming. Long time coming. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well done. Very good. Thanks, Joel. Uh, we will break now for a quick message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. And hello. Uh, Brett Dickinson, uh, yes. you're having a quiet morning, mate. Have you, uh, uh, have you had your coffee? Uh, <laughs> not enough of it. I, I had the one when I first got up, but not another one since I got to the office. So I think that's probably why I'm not as, as sparky as I'd like to be. Hey, so you're, in your, you're in your workout gear, so I, I know you're uh, keeping fit and active. Uh, well, that's one way to put it. It's, it's more a matter of I've got to commute in from, from home to the city somehow, and public transport isn't preferred, so on the bike is... Uh, is an easier option and most of the time it's quicker anyway yeah um but uh i was also just gathering my thoughts louis whilst listening to yourself and joel a bit um just on, on some information i was i was trying to assess here 
regarding um, the construction industry in Australia. Uh, we know it's a, a big employer, but it also gives some indication as to, as to where property prices and trends are going. Uh, so I was just looking at a range of sources to try and come up with uh, with a summary of the scenario. Yeah. Uh, just uh, in regards to the employment, it's the second biggest industry of employment in the country, um, second only behind health and, and healthcare and social assistance. Uh, so generally employs around 1.2 million people, uh, but mm. through COVID, uh, there was a, a decline in in jobs, around 82,000 jobs were lost uh, in the construction and building industry from March last year through to August last year. Uh, interestingly, there's just under 400,000 businesses Australia-wide considered to be active in the construction industry. So it's not only just a big employer, but there's a lot of small businesses, I would assume, are involved in that. Uh, so it's, it's certainly got a big impact on the Australia, on the Australian economy. Um, but the concerns at the moment are obviously about, um, you know, what's happening with the loss of JobKeeper and, and where the economy's heading. Uh, one of the other concerns that was noted is that the cost of imported materials rose dramatically, uh, in some cases up to 30%, but an average of around 15 to 20% through the COVID period. And it's still yet to sort of uh, decline to a level uh, where it was prior and may not ever. Uh, of course, this is probably due to uh, limitations on the amount of imports coming through and, and the, the extra costs associated with quarantine and, and anything else. Uh, but the materials most affected were aluminium, glazing, plumbing fixtures, um, carpets, tiling uh, and mechanical and electrical parts. So a lot of the builders are, are facing the equation where they're trying to figure out, well, do I continue to try and buy from offshore where the pricing is typically better? Um, but I, I run the risk of seeing whether the price does increase by the time I actually land it. But the bit, the second risk with that also was that it may not arrive in time. Uh, and for the majority of builders, a big part of their work is making sure they deliver on time. Uh, so having the risk of not actually knowing where they're going to be able to get supply has led to them looking to source more locally. Uh, but unfortunately, locally is typically more expensive. So that's adding to the cost of, of a lot of the construction as well. Uh, the Ryder-Levitt-Bucknell uh, Crane Index, I think we've touched on this once or twice before in the podcast, they release it only twice a year. So the most recent one was the Q3 report from 2020. Uh, and this just tells us how many cranes are up in the sky all around Australia in yeah. involved in construction. Um, so it tells us a bit about uh, how many new ones have gone up versus how many uh, existing ones have been pulled down. Yeah. which they give uh, a, a, the definition of a churn rate. So uh, a number above one means that there's more cranes uh, in exist or in this guy now than there was previously, and a number below one means less. So the churn rate f across the country was, was significantly under one uh, across all the major capitals. Uh, so Australia-wide, it was at 0.86. So definitely showed a slowdown of, of construction activity. The hardest hit of the big cities was Brisbane that had a churn rate of 0.73. Right. Interestingly, though, Sydney almost broke even with a, with a churn rate of 0.98. So Sydney had a – so the, I guess they, they measure their churn rate when they do their, their six-monthly report, 
and Sydney being the, the biggest construction centre for, for Australia with 41% of all cranes in the air, uh, had 299 in, in Q1 of 2020 uh, and 297 uh, in Q3. So almost basically broke even. So yeah. not significant changes there. The, the area that I thought was more interesting is when they break it down by industry. Uh, and the the biggest industry for for cranes is residential, with 67% of, of all cranes in the air being for residential purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, second biggest being commercial, and then there's there's other such as civil and hotel. Uh, but the residential cranes did drop by about 10%. So it just showed there was a pullback from probably both developers and and you know builders being able to actually get to site as well probably had a bit of an impact. So the majority of the declining cranes in the air was in the residential section. Uh, some other things that I thought were, were interesting, the forecast going forward uh, is, so we're expecting a rebound uh, after COVID that uh, building and construction work should increase by around 2.3%. So the total value of construction work in 2019 was 205 billion. The expectation for 2021 to 22 is 230 billion. So positive territory and, and still a big contributor. Uh, A big reason for this, and I think we touched on it last year when we're in the midst of COVID, was was how the the state and and the federal government sort of combined to try and cut approval time for infrastructure projects. So that's going to have a significant impact with with getting more more people involved in the construction industry and keeping jobs there. Uh, So that was announced in, in October last year. Uh, and that was a significant amount of uh, $7.5 billion on, on transport infrastructure across the, pro, uh, across the country uh, and total investments of around $14 billion, of which $9.5 billion is, is due to be spent over the next four years. So it looks like the construction industry will be able to maintain its position as the second biggest employer. Uh, I think it also means that wherever those big infrastructure projects are is probably where residential property prices are going to perform reasonably well, mainly because the jobs are there, which means that the people can afford the housing nearby. Uh, whenever we talk about residential property and, and expectations of, of capital growth, one of the biggest factors we, we really dig into is, is where the jobs are and the affordability uh, of people being able to, to live in that area generate their wage and have enough of a wage to be able to pay whatever the going rate is. Uh, so that being said, the major capitals still look like being the strongest for that with Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane having the most amount of those infrastructure projects. Right. right. That's pretty much the snapshot I was able to get from from all this data today. Yeah, very interesting. And on that, on the, on the jobs uh, being centred around capital cities, um, th- there's this trend of moving away from capital cities with the remote working. Um, do you see that as being a, a major change or is that just a, a minor swing in, in that particular variable? The, I guess the interesting thing is with the jobs being focused in the major capitals from a construction perspective, uh, a lot of the, the types of workers could still potentially live remotely. Um, a lot of the, the remote uh, working we've seen, we've been talking about it being uh, by virtual, you know, use of online technology for, for meetings and the like. Obviously, with construction, 
you can't really do your job remotely if you're if you're involved no. on site. Uh, but having said that, there's a number of regional areas that are still, you know, less than an hour's drive to to a major hub, and a lot of a lot of the construction we're seeing in these capital cities doesn't mean it's in the heart of the CBD. It might be just in the outer metropolitan areas as well, where where some people could still live in a more regional area and still be able to commute into a work site uh, on a day to day basis. Uh, the, I, I guess, Lou, if I have a look at the crane activity, there's not a lot of regional areas that are listed. Um, that doesn't mean there's not a lot of um, construction going on in regards to residential, because obviously you don't need a crane for a house. Uh, so typically when they're talking about these cranes and they're, and they're relating it to residential, it's generally apartment complexes where they're, they're high rise or at least over four levels where cranes are involved. Uh, the only ones that sort of got a mention in the in the crane activity were the Sunshine Coast, which actually did strengthen um, from 11 to 15 cranes, uh, mm -hmm. and Wollongong that, that did the exact reverse, went from 15 cranes to 11. Uh, mm -hmm. Pretty much all of the other areas are, are major capitals. You know, Adelaide went from 15 to 10, Brisbane from 58 to 50. Uh, but the bulk of it, as we said, Sydney with 41% of cranes and Melbourne with 27%. Percent. Mm. Uh, that looks like it's going to continue with, uh, with the infrastructure projects and the major projects around the country. So the majority of construction jobs are still going to be around the capitals. Yeah, okay, okay. Very interesting. Thanks, Brett. Uh, let's pause for another quick message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance, or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capitals Advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 8657 7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. And coming back, uh, gents, in uh, celebration of International Women's Day, uh, Rainmaker is a research company that uh, uh, puts together a lot of data on uh, fund managers, investment performance, superannuation funds, and uh, and so forth. They've come out with a report uh, which is looking at the correlation between uh, superannuation fund performance of uh, some of Australia's biggest superannuation providers and their default MySuper products looking at a correlation between the performance of those and the level of women in leadership positions in those uh, organisations. And they've come up with some interesting results. What they found is that when there are women in leadership positions, there's not, a, there's not really a correlation between that and investment performance except for a couple of key positions. So when they look at the number of uh, women on the board of directors, 
that's not really an indicator of, um, of, of better investment returns. When they look at the number of uh, women in executive positions, not really an indicator. But when they get a combination of uh, female board members plus a female CEO or chairperson, that combination is actually an indicator of some better investment returns. That's interesting. Mm. It is interesting. Wow. Absolutely. And why? Well, well, before you get into that, Louis, I, I, uh, I've seen uh, a number of reports that suggest that women are better traders than men as well when it comes to stock trading. And and it comes down when they did the study and the analysis. And I don't know what your your studies suggest, but uh, when they did the study and the analysis, they suggested that it's because of women's conservative approach to investment that tended to um, mean that they were better managers and prudent uh, allocators of more prudent allocators of capital whereas males tend to have a little bit more of a, a risk-taking, um, uh, you know, innate about them. <laughs> Speculation is the word I use there, Joel. Yes. Uh, the, the willingness to speculate. Um, and, uh, and oh, you need, just need to look at what happened recently with, with GameStop. And uh, I, I surf Reddit from time to time, and uh, it's certainly a conversation that's dominated by um, by males, um, just from the uh, the tone of the uh, comments that come across, um, there's uh, certainly a lot of uh, male bravado that goes into these people who are losing money at an alarming rate. <clears throat> yes, indeed. But what did your what did your study show? Uh, this showed over three years a performance boost of 0.9 percent per annum. That's not insignificant. That is uh, that is highly significant yeah. for super funds where you're talking about uh, 20, 30 year uh, investment timeframes. Um, for for your average person with an average super funds, that's going to translate to a pretty pretty significant difference. You know, a, a 20, 30, 40 percent difference in um, in final superannuation balance. Absolutely, yeah. So um, it's it's fascinating to to look at those results um, and uh, and that combination of it. Um, so what's the specific combination? Uh, a, a gender mix, um, a gender mix of the trustee board, yeah, and a woman as their chair or CEO. That's the specific combination. And uh, and in the articles I've read surrounding it, there's um, uh, there's a couple of uh, things which uh, uh, a couple of problems which have been mentioned among uh, pretty much every industry in Australia that has a, a gender inequality. Um, there's uh, there's the bias of male leaders tending to promote men over women. Um, and uh, and another problem of a, a lack of female graduates in that particular sector, and um, so there's that uh, the the potential for that to apply to the finance industry, but that applies to a lot of industries. Um, why do these specific super funds perform better? Um, well, one thought uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but one thought is when the organisation provides an environment that is more supportive, more progressive. Um, more um, uh, more based in uh, in logic and data to measure performance irrespective of gender, 
um, well, then you've got an environment which is going to lead to greater success. So these types of organisations um, that uh, that don't have these inherent biases are um, are going to have that environment through their entire organisation, uh, extending through to the investment managers and the investment performance. So that's that's one thinking uh, that's uh, that's linking uh, the investment performance with the culture of the organisation. Which is interesting, but there is another line of thinking, which is that this is actually survivorship bias. And survivorship bias is that um, it's only the very best that survive and therefore become the examples. And the thinking there is that for a, a female to get a leadership position in the first place, they have to be that much better than their male counterparts, which means once they are in that CEO or chairperson position, you've actually got a person in that role who is that much better than the alternative person or the person at their competing organisations. And because they're that much better, that's leading to the outperformance. Mm. So yeah. the, the thinking there is if there can be a way to actually prevent other women of similarly high caliber from not jumping out of the industry because they're better supported or because uh, the, uh, the the biases are removed um, that are preventing them from uh, from getting the promotions um, and if there's better supports to get females into the industry in the first place well then you can eliminate this survivorship bias and you can actually have um, uh, more women in uh, in leadership positions and therefore better investment performance. Mm. So, Louis, the the one that you said about it being a gender mix at the at the trustee or, or board level, did they mention any ratios or just that there was female representation was was the definition of the gender mix? Uh, just that there was a gender mix. They didn't yeah. specify a, a a ratio. Yeah. Okay. Oh, they, they did. Sorry, uh, they did say that on average, um, there's about uh, four out of ten trustees uh, being women. Right, which means that uh, six out of ten uh, are, are men. Yeah, okay. Hmm. Oh, something I think. Uh, yeah, as we looked for more and more investments in the future, that could be some of the criteria we start to assess. Yeah, it could as. As a as an indicator of the of the overall culture, um, and uh, and promotion on an equal opportunity basis, yeah, for sure. It's it's one of those things where, when you look at just the data, it, when you look at the data across the industry, it tells a story, and then you can use that data as an indicator for what's actually going on underneath. Mm. So it's it's not saying that just because you've got females there that it's going to be better but the presence of females in leadership positions is an indicator of the broader culture mm. and if you've got all the other elements that go into a sex a successful organization uh in addition to those then um uh well then you've got that mixture of things for success mm. yeah. sure i mean it makes sense it makes sense yeah Yep. So, gents, on that note, happy Women's uh, Happy International Women's Day, and uh, 
Uh, next, we generally talk about, uh, in the next section, we generally talk about stupid men, don't we? <laughs> yeah, more often than not. <laughs> well, this, well, I'm sorry, Louis, I'm, I might be raining on your parade here a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. And this was not this was not intentional. This was not uh, to disparage females in any exception any to the rule. Yeah, but I, I I needed to. I mean, we were obviously talking about uh, you cannot be serious, and and I think I've got a, a very big you cannot be serious here. Uh, whether or not you've been reading this in the Financial Review or not, following what has happened at Minta Allison, um, the managing partner and CEO Annette Kimmett. Uh, has given a classic example of go woke, go broke. Um, sorry, Louis, I know that uh, you are one of those <laughs> wokers. I am woke, <laughs> and I'm not broke yet. <laughs> but uh, uh, managing partner uh, of Minta Allison, the Australia's largest law firm, uh, made a comment on the uh, hiring of Peter Bartlett, one of their senior partners, by Christian Porter, the Attorney General, who is facing a rape allegation. Now, Peter Bartlett um, has been providing advice to Christian Porter in, re in respect of this matter, and Annette Kimmett was not very happy about that, apparently. In fact, in an email that she sent to uh, employees, she said, one of our partners is acting on a high-profile matter, and uh, I became aware of this last night through Twitter and media reports. Um, the acceptance of this matter did not go through the firm's due consultation or approval process. Had it done so, we would have considered the matter through the lens of our purposes and values. Now, for a law firm to suggest that they would pick and choose their, their clients and that somebody should be denied the right of legal representation and the, denied the right of the presumption of innocence yeah. uh, because of the uh, because of somebody's you know yeah, assumption that this client. person yeah. yeah all of a sudden that there's, there's an assumption here that because of the claim that all of a sudden christian porter is uh is guilty uh and that doesn't deserve the legal representation of of a law firm to to back his claim and to defend his his rights and uphold his human rights under law i think is is quite um you know is quite a concerning uh, mindset for somebody at minter allison and and so too uh, did the th did uh, many of the partners at Minter Allison agree? So it seems as though uh, Annette Kimmett has uh, been shown the door, and um, in some respects, it's a sad, sad day because uh, you know you never like to see a, a very successful, high-paid, high-powerful uh, woman during the week of uh, International Women's Day get the door. But uh, in this case here, I think she just completely forgot who she was working for and what her purpose is and what the law firm's purpose is. Yeah, sounds yeah. like it. Yeah, Just, very uh, interesting Yeah, yep. And and I think you're right, Joel. Everyone's entitled to legal representation. Um, and the the thing which I think of is, well, what's going to happen next? So which type of employer or organisation is going to come knocking on her door? It's going to be one that fits in with her values and she's going to get a fantastic job opportunity next from some kind of organisation who's looking for a person exactly like that. Whether it's a law firm or not is yet to be seen, but uh, I reckon she'll land on her feet uh, and, I and, and I reckon that uh, Minter Allison has also uh, done the thing which they need to uh, according to the principles of the legal uh, organisation, uh, the, the legal industry. Yeah, and, and look, I can understand that if you are 
you know, running a financial services business or if you're running a um, some other sort of business that isn't attached to the law, that, you know, you may have concerns about a client of yours who is uh, under current rape allegations or investigations become a, a, a client. But the whole purpose of uh, a law firm is to be there to uphold and to seek the truth and seek justice. Now, whether or not that pans out that uh, Christian Porter is guilty or not, I'm not making any aspersions of, of his innocence or guilt. All I'm suggesting is that uh, the Attorney General uh, should be uh, awarded the same um, fair rights under law as any other criminal or innocent person who is uh, facing some form of similar allegation. Mm. And and everyone's entitled, uh, as you said, everyone's entitled to legal representation, and that's a that's a right that uh, that can't be denied. Yeah. Mm. Well, mm. Should we move back on to stupid men? Come on, yeah. stupid man. <laughs> Let's move on, on to stupid men then. <laughs> well, this is a combination of a stupid man, but also a warning to uh, any any criminals uh, need to start watching what they eat. Uh, this comes in the light of a burglar uh, being caught for a burglary in 2012 after committing a more serious crime uh, and a DNA match because during the burglary he decided to have a bite of a sausage and left some <laughs> DNA behind. Uh, oh, oh, my no. goodness. Uh, so, uh, but the headline, this is this is the real catch. Uh, the headline is that German police fear the worst. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Fantastic. The Bratwurst, eh? The Bratwurst, exactly. Uh, Gents, more of an interesting uh, bit of tidbit uh, information. The oldest person in Costa Rica is 121 years old. Oh, my goodness. That's a good innings. Uh, They got COVID last year and survived. Wow. They also got the Spanish flu in 1918 oh, and survived. That's a unique <laughs> double. That's got to be the only double of its kind. Wow. That's right. And then yesterday received his dose of the COVID vaccine. And that'll kill him. <laughs> <laughs> the side effects will get you. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, guys, uh, thanks again for uh, for a lovely session, and uh, we hope our listeners enjoyed it just as much as we did. And we'll do it all again next week. Okay then. Thanks, Louis. Well done, and we should have Steph back as, as well next week. Oh, fantastic! That'll be I'm nice. Sure I'm tired of hearing my voice. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> See, I didn't get invited this morning. What do you mean you didn't get she invited? Been there the whole she's, time. She was invited. She, she was just. Shopping. She was just. Well, she knew it was Friday, and she was playing all sort of. <laughs> oh, I'll give it one more week. No, you said I was going to do the podcast, but I did. I did like the bratwurst. That was hilarious. So some good. You can't be serious. And women in the kitchen was my favourite as well. That was uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad this episode has Steph's tick of approval. Yeah, I was like, mm, Louie, you're pretty good. Not quite as good as me, but you're up there. <laughs> Far out. Oh, we miss you. All right. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Take it easy, See guys. Bye, guys. See ya.